This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along. The Bureau of Meteorology has officially declared a La Nina has developed in the Pacific Ocean. And that usually means wetter than normal periods for eastern, northern and central parts of Australia. After half past 12 today, you will find out what it means for you here in Western Australia. Also today and very shortly... Why the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Stephen Dawson, is refusing to come on the Country Hour and tell you how WA's new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws will affect farmers. Now, last week, the opposition was here on the program and telling you that these new laws will require farmers to get approvals for a range of farm activities, possibly including the construction of dams, tracks and deep ribbing. Now, since that interview with Neil Thompson from the opposition, it was last Thursday, every day I've put the call in to the minister's office to see if Stephen Dawson was available. The answer's been no every day. Today I was told he's simply not available to talk on this issue and we'll get to the bottom of that shortly, hopefully. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And to kick off today, a multi-tiered wheat market has opened up in the last couple of weeks with a huge spread in prices between top quality APW wheat and lower quality ASW. Prices ex Quinana yesterday show APW was trading at $415 a tonne while ASW was trading at $330 a tonne. That's a difference of $85, and it's usually only a $10 to $15 difference. It's a sign the market believes a lot of low-quality wheat is about to be harvested here in Australia, and it's sending a message that what it really wants is high-quality wheat. Andrew Whitelaw is a commodity analyst with Thomas Elder Markets. Andrew, can you explain in a little more detail what is happening to the price of wheat? Well, really, our wheat prices are are in a two, if not three-tier system at the moment. We're seeing on a global level, pricing is just going through the roof. I think we're probably at the highest levels price-wise in in, in futures, uh, at least for the past decade. So we're seeing overseas this real rush to buy grain and we're seeing futures levels rising. For this coming harvest, uh, Chicago futures are 425 and we've got a $400 a tonne plus for next harvest on offer. So we are seeing, you know, globally, you know, the market is rising and, and that's fantastic because our prices are largely determined by what happens overseas because we're an exporter. Uh, but then we've got then we come down to sort of local level and and part of that rise has actually been because of issues that we're having in Australia. It's no surprise to anyone, but it's it's very wet in in a lot of the growing areas, especially on the east coast and so so that's causing another tier of pricing differences is our discounts to things like ASW you know we've we've seen you know typically we would expect ASW to trade at a let's call it an eight to fifteen dollars a ton discount. On, on average across the last sort of 10 years. But we're seeing in the last week, you know, this current week, the average discount is $85 at Quinana. 
So that's a huge discount. And, and, and it's reflecting the fact that the, the trade is concerned that there's going to be too much low-quality, low-protein wheat. Where have those seasonal conditions, where are they being felt hardest around Australia? Because certainly here in Western Australia, we've seen that rain and those unseasonal sort of conditions, but it seems to have been really affecting the East Coast at this point. Yeah, well, I think if we, if we look at it overall, like the last month or, or just in November, there hasn't really been that many areas that haven't been impacted. We've had, like you say, the parts of Western Australia have been impacted South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. But I would say the biggest risk at the moment is is definitely that New South Wales area where the weather forecasts are still for, for pretty substantial falls the next week. And harvest has not really been able to kick up a gear yet because it's been so so stop and start. And that's obviously a bit of a concern for, for traders because, you know, we're, we're behind on, on, on the volume in terms of the exports getting grain to the export facilities. And then also on top of that, you know, traders have sold this grain on quality specifications. Now there's concerns that, well, if we have downgraded feed wheat, we saw in 2010, big chunks of our, of our wheat ended up as feed quality. If we say the same, you've got people who have sold vessels and, and the shipping stem is completely full right through, I think, for the first six months of the year from the major ports. That means there's going to be issues actually being able to get the quality protein specifications to what the customers have actually purchased. So it's it's a pretty interesting one where we've got, you know, traders are definitely paying a premium to get access to the quality grades that they actually want, which is the higher protein levels, for, you know, for blending purposes. And then it's, you know, definitely New South Wales is is looking very, very poor at the moment. And look, you never say never. There could be some sort of miracle and, and the crop could end up okay. But I'll be putting my money on, on quality downgrades across the board in, in New South Wales. What are the implications then for the wheat going out of Australia? What is the sort of flow-on effect from that situation that you're now seeing develop here in Australia? Well, look, we've had, we had last year a, a massive crop last year and, and we exported it and I think we've had record exports in, in 2020. We were gearing up for another year of that. Look, we still will have those exports. We still will have a, a large export program. We need to get the grain out of the country. It just might not be for the premium levels that we've seen. You know, if we see 60, 50, 60% being of the crop being relatively low protein, then, then that is going to have a pricing impact. The, the saving grace that we have at the moment is probably the fact that there is substantial demand still for feed quality grain around the world. You know, and that's what we've seen over the last 12 months is, you know, places like China hoovering up barley and wheat and corn, Thailand, Indonesia, Middle East, all been hoovering up as much grain as they can get. And despite the fact that it's feed, there's still ample demand out there for, for feed quality grains. What else is happening in the markets? Because there are a, a, a number of different players who've sort of uh, bobbed up in, in the market at the moment. Turkey and Iran apparently buying decent amounts of wheat. What's happening with those two markets? I think a lot of countries at the moment are dipping their toes in the water, so to speak, to, to, to buy grain. You've got a lot of countries out there. You know, Turkey is a, is a, is a major a major importer of things like flour as well. You know, 
almost exclusively from from Russia. Then you've got places like Iran, um, Afghanistan. Those are two countries which have had particularly poor harvests in recent times. But they also have a major deficit. Most of that Middle East has a major deficit in terms of how much barley or, or wheat that they produce versus how much they require. You know, you're talking countries with large populations, but with relatively desolate soils. And and so so they have to come into the market. And you're seeing them coming into a market at a time when the when the prices have increased dramatically. So that means that they're, I guess, a little bit spooked that the market will continue to rise. But demand is demand. And, you know, we we see ample demand this year because, you know, we see places like Canada having a poor crop, France having a poor quality crop, which the market was looking towards Australia to fill the vacuum of of high quality wheat, you know, high protein wheats. And, And obviously this is scaring the market a bit, the fact that, well, you know, we've got to the uh, the last five meters of a hundred of the hundred meter dash, and we are going to struggle to get that quality profile, most likely. Where is the price of say, you know, that top tier? If we've got sort of two or three tiers of the wheat prices at the moment, where is that top tier likely to go to with the demand and and the supply just not being there? Oh, I could guess, but. It's uh, it's all speculation at the moment. L- looking historically, they have definitely been higher than they are just now. Then at the other end, Andrew, for you know the ones that aren't quite making the grade and they're getting really discounted at the moment, where might they land? And then the the flow on effects for other grains too, in particular feed barley. Yeah, and I think this is if if we if we look at it from a point of view of, of the lower grades, like ASW just now. In Western Australia, you know, you're talking what three hundred and thirty dollars a ton, approximately, in the last couple of days, which historically is a is a fantastic price, but like I say, very heavily discounted. And, and one of the things that we've been talking about a lot in the last sort of year and a half or so has been our barley pricing. And, and barley pricing has been attractive at, at the price that the grower receives. But it's heavily discounted. You know, our barley pricing is heavily discounted versus anywhere else in the world. But also our barley is heavily discounted to wheat. And that's the other one that we see as being a major risk is that if we start to have an abundance of feed quality wheat in the country, then we might see a bit of pressure on on feed barley pricing. Because we've got to bear in mind, we don't have that many uh, customers for our barley. Losing China, which was a, a dominant player has meant that barley has enough struggles as it is. And so as much as we've seen ASW falling to a larger discount, F1 to APW has you know, increased dramatically as well in terms of its discount. You know, its discount is looking more like a $125 a tonne discount to APW, whereas historically that's more like a rubber $35 to, to $45 discount. So we are seeing an impact across different grades, but really when we, when we look at what could happen to wheat pricing is really in the realm of speculation at the moment and it really depends on how bad things get on on the east coast and the west coast and how much low quality wheat we end up having if feed quality wheat becomes 30 percent then that's not going to be as bad as if it becomes 60 percent so i think we've just got to wait and see because the reality is we haven't even in the west in the east coast we haven't really even been able to harvest to actually see what the quality is like what would you 
Say to growers then, who, are, you know, as you said, it's been a very stop-start season with the harvest. It hasn't even really taken off in the east. We've, we have started here in the west, but it's a little bit, um, it's on again, off it's again not. with the rain. But what advice would you have for growers in this situation? The main thing I would say is a, a couple of points, I guess, is one, if you've got, you know, multi-grade contracts that you've not assigned your grain to, you've got to sit and look for each of those contracts and think carefully before you lock in what you're sending to the customer. You know, most of those multi-grade contracts, the ASW spread will be more like an eight than an 80, which will, you obviously want to probably assign that against those contracts, but you've got to sit down and, and actually calculate rather than just saying, right, let's transfer the grain through and not think about it. You've got to, you've got to really take a close eye on it. Uh, when it comes to actually selling your grain, I think it's, you know, the prices are good at the moment, yeah? But you just, I would not be game if you haven't yet started harvest. This is more so on the, the East Coast. I don't think I would be selling, you know, high protein grain to somebody when you haven't even started harvest because there's a big risk there. And and the risk is that you, you have things like washout risk because you don't meet the quality. But But conversely, and it's probably not as big an issue in, in, in South Australia, but it, but it could be, in, in Western Australia, sorry, is if you're unsure that you're going to actually meet the contract deadlines, you know, most of the contracts are going to be, you must deliver by, you know, end of December, is make sure that you get onto that as quick as possible and that you, you speak to the buyer and say, look, I'm not going to be able to deliver uh, so you can get an extension or, or, or whatnot. But definitely my view would be is that if I was a betting man, I would say that as things get worse, then protein premiums will rise and, and discounts to lower quality wheat will will also increase. But even these discounts at the moment we're seeing already seem pretty high in my opinion. There's a bit to think about. Thank you so much for going through that with us here on the Country Hour today, Andrew. Appreciate it. No worries. Anytime. Andrew Whitelaw, he is a commodity analyst from Thomas Elder Markets, 19 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. The Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Stephen Dawson, is refusing to come on the Country Hour and tell you how WA's new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws will affect farmers. Last week, Shadow Minister for Planning, Lands and Heritage, Neil Thompson, told you the new laws will require farmers to get approvals for a range of different things that happen on farms, like the construction of dams, tracks and even deep ripping. And every day since you heard that interview with Neil Thompson, I've asked the Minister to come on the show and address a lot of those concerns that Neil was talking about. Today, I was told the Minister is not available to speak on this. Not today, not tomorrow. I'm not sure when. Maybe never. So to recap some of the concerns this proposed bill has raised for the farming sector, here's just a little of what Neil Thompson said here last week. Is never being codified in this way to uh, outline a process of approvals for small landholders where uh, to undertake any minimal ground disturbance, and we can use the exact terms, to uh, low ground disturbance activities uh, is what we call a tier two activity, which will require a permit 
and the symbol when you go on the uh, on their information sheet there's actually a spade now they don't tell us what those activities are but i have been uh, told by staff at the department that it could involve uh, anything from um, you know digging a foundation you know making a farm track digging a farm dam there will be a permit process that will be required and i know for a lot of country people that happens on a daily basis there'd be something that will happen where there'll be some form of digging plowing whatever uh, we don't even know whether plowing a field would be a low uh, a low disturbance activity that might be a tier one activity i don't know they haven't explained that yet and so we're expected to pass a bill and they, they're using the urgent bill provisions they're going to rush it through before christmas and without knowing how this is going to impact on our farming community that is Neil Thompson, Shadow Minister for Planning, Lands and Heritage, and just raising some of the concerns that he has after being briefed on the bill last week. Stephen Dawson, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, refusing to come on the show to address some of those concerns that were raised last week, which is really not good enough, especially when here at the Country Hour we're getting calls and texts like this coming through to the show. Uh, This one from Paula. I'm sending this message as I have a great concern as a farmer over the Cultural Heritage Bill, which is in Parliament now. On Thursday's Country Hour, there was a story which made the comments about the bill. It will affect all freehold title. Farmers will need permission to deep rip a paddock, dig a dam, grade a farm track. They'll need to get a licence from a cultural group, which will be set up to give you a licence for a fee. I'm not sure if this is fact or fiction. The government is trying to pass the bill before Christmas. I was wondering if you could ask questions of the appropriate person. I thought the bill was introduced to protect important cultural sites, not stop farming. Cheers and looking forward to the information, says Paula. Well, uh, we too were looking forward to the information and to address some of those concerns. It is not going to happen today, the Minister not coming on the show. I'll keep putting in the requests. I certainly hope he changes his mind and we'll come on to talk about some of those issues. Tony Seabrook is president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association. Tony, what do you make of the Minister's refusal to address those concerns? I think that that says it all, to a T, it says it all. Um, This legislation has been uh, in the making over quite a long period of time and the association has been very heavily involved in trying to negotiate uh, a whole variety of different changes uh, there have been actually 100 changes to the legislation since it was first proposed, but then it was put before Parliament without giving our organisation or anyone else the opportunity to see what it would look like. You know, this I guess this is the arrogance of a government uh, that's got control of both houses and thinking that it doesn't need to discuss these issues uh, with the people it's going to affect. What does the possibility of another layer of bureaucracy, red tape for approvals like dams or tracks or whatever it might be, mean to the farming sector here in WA? Look, it's called red tape. It's just simply exactly that. Every government seems to come to power saying they will do something to remove red tape and then it goes ahead and creates even more of it. But look, at a time when Australia is under enormous duress uh, all around the world, at a time when we need everything going for us that we possibly can, this is the sort of stupidity that some people might refer to shooting yourself in the foot. You know, we don't need more impediments to people getting on and doing what we need to do to make this country a wealthier place than it, than it is today. We just need encouragement. And I'm afraid this bill uh, is the opposite to that. And the fact the Minister won't even step forward and discuss it with you on the country hour is an indication, I think, that even they know that it's a flawed piece of legislation. What do you hope happens from now then? 
Well, why they want to ram it through before Christmas, I've no idea. You know, they've got a whole term to do this. And and if, if the bill needs to be amended, then we need to take time to do that, to do it properly. The fact they're rushing it through, uh, most people can't understand why on earth they want to do that. Uh, as an association, as an industry, we need time to work our way through what this, these changes might mean. But obviously the stuff in there that even the minister doesn't want to have disclosed, and ultimately it will be the, to the detriment of everybody because it's not just the pastoral estate, not just the agricultural estate, it's the pastoral estate as well. It will have massive long-reaching effects and without any shadow of doubt, we'll see a whole bunch of bureaucrats massively empowered to cause grief. Tony, good to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Tony Seabrook is the president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association. And just repeating the news that we're hoping to answer some of those concerns raised for the farm sector with the um, proposals in the new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws. As I said, the Minister, Stephen Dawson, refusing to come on the show to address those concerns. But I will keep putting in the calls every day to see if he changes his mind. 25 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. News headlines for you at half past 12. Just before that, the state opposition says lengthy delays to a business case for Tier 3 rail lines could result in WA missing out on federal government funding to restore some of the lines. Back in September 2020, WA Transport Minister Rita Safiotti announced a business case would be prepared for Tier 3 rail lines just to assess whether or not it was possible to reopen some of those lines that transport grain from regional receival sites to port. Shadow Treasurer Steve Thomas is starting to think the government has gone cold on Tier 3 lines. The first part of the job is to get the business cases completed for the upgrades they've proposed, those three tier three lines that they've talked about now for a couple of years. The business cases aren't done, and I've asked in state parliament every few months when we consider the business cases and what the next step is, and we're still waiting. There are a few pieces of this puzzle. What's your understanding of where plans are at for what I understand to be stage one of the state government's agricultural supply chain improvement strategy that's already been funded? That's $200 million, some from the feds and some from the state government. What's your understanding of where plans are at with that money? Well, some of that is in process of being spent. So for stage one of the agricultural supply chain improvements, uh, there was $200 million in total, $160 million from the federal government uh, and 40 from the state, which, and the state generally tries to take credit for the whole lot. But that's doing a number of things. Some of that money is yet to be attributed, but that money is not the investment into those tier three rail lines. Uh, for starters, it's only $200 million. Those three lines combined would be at least double that or more. These are improvements to around existing rail lines. There are some sidings that are being put in, uh, some interactions between road and rail, and that's good investment, so we welcome that. But this is not stage two, which is those tier three rail lines, and the state Labor government have been talking about those lines now for years. You know, the critical step here is, is, is the development of the business cases, and the critical timing relates to the federal election. It's The federal election will be in six months' time. And before that, we need to see these business cases assessed. And if they're going to go to the federal government to seek funding, they need to be assessed by Infrastructure Australia. Uh, That's the process that we need to go through. It should not have taken 14 months to still not be able to deliver a business case. And we are going to run out of time. There is no shortage of projects that 
uh, money could be spent on in terms of agricultural transport routes. Is it important that the planning is not rushed? I think it's absolutely critical that we get this right. And you're right, there are plenty of other projects that would enhance agricultural uh, delivery. And we need to look potentially at all of those. But the government has now had 14 months to try and get a business case together and failed. If this money is going to be potentially taken and spent on something else, that might be a good outcome. But why is the government keeping everybody in the dark on this? I mean, the decision will need to be made. If this is a good investment, then the state will need to take it to the Commonwealth. Everybody will have to agree on it. If the business cases, in even in partial terms, doesn't look good, I'm calling on the state government to actually release what they've got, uh, tell everybody, and if they're going to walk away from this project, fine, let them walk away, and then we can look at what other projects might deliver other important benefits to agricultural supply. So are you thinking that the state has called on spending money on Tier 3? That would be my impression. I, can't, I don't understand why it would take 14 months to half do a business set of business cases. Uh, I think that should have been out there, and I'm wondering why. So either either the government has gone cold on this project and it's just trying to kick the can down the road past the next federal election before they drop the bad news, or they're simply incompetent and can't do a set of business cases. And I'm not sure which one of those is the truth, but I wish the government would tell us so we could take the next steps. Shadow Treasurer Steve Thomas with Lucinda Jose, and the call was put to the Transport Minister's uh, Rita Safiotti's office for response to the those concerns and she says it's a bit rich for Steve Thomas to complain about our work on this issue when he was part of the party that sold off the regional freight lines and shut down tier three and failed regional WA. Uh, she also says we already secured $200 million of funding for package one of agricultural supply chain improvements, the first government investment in regional freight rail for many years and are working with the Commonwealth to finalise which projects will receive early funding following extensive community consultation. And the third point Rita Safiotti wants to make is that uh, we're also currently developing the next stage of the WA Agricultural Supply Chain Improvements Options Assessment Business Case and expect to finalise this in the coming months. It is 29 to 1 and time for an update from the newsroom with Jonathan Hopper. Good afternoon, Belinda. WA's Premier Mark McGowan says alleged threats made against him will not change his government's push to vaccinate the population against COVID-19. Police have charged two men who allegedly made threatening phone calls to Mr McGowan on Saturday night. It's alleged the 20-year-old and 18-year-old phoned the Premier and left several threatening messages. And Mark McGowan says 84.7% of the state's population aged 12 and over have now received one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. 72.4% of the eligible population has been double-dosed and there were no new cases reported overnight in the state. Tasmanian Independent Senator Jackie Lambie is accusing One Nation of publishing her private mobile phone number on social media. A Tasmanian candidate for the party took aim at Senator Lambie's stance on vaccine mandates, criticising her for refusing to back the party's bill to override the state-based rules. In doing so, candidate Steve Mav posted her number on Facebook before editing the post to remove the details. Thanks Belinda. Jonathan, thank you so much for that update. It is 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Uh, just on those concerns raised by Steve Thomas, Shadow uh, Treasurer, 
uh, just before the news headlines talking about, you know, wondering where the business case for the Tier 3 lines are that the government promised, I think, back 14 months ago. This through from Peter. Just opening Querading to York for a start, a million dollars a kilometre to replace 60 kilometres, connect two strategic CBH bins to get about 250 to 300,000 tonnes of grain off the road and save the roads. Pretty simple. $7 billion can go into Metronet and it doesn't work yet. Thank you, Peter. To be part of the conversation, text through 0448 27 to 1 between now and 1 o'clock. Off to Mouche for a wrap of the sheep market today. And as you would have heard in the news in uh, the resources world today, some big news coming out that Woodside is going ahead with its $16 billion Scarborough LNG project. We'll just recap some of the key points of that announcement. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, and Joey Warlson is with you today. Joey, starting with a look at the Southwest Land Division, what can you see? Yeah, so Southwest Land Division is um, kind of shifted. So, one of our forecasters today called it the start of summer. So, we've got a high pressure system that's moving to the south of the state and it's uh, going to drive warmer and drier conditions. And those drier conditions are going to last, you know, out for at least a week. So, um, the southwest of the state are looking pretty good and we're, we're certainly moving away from uh, those showers and thunderstorm type events that we've had over the last couple of weeks. And moving forward then to the rest of the week and into the weekend, clear skies ahead? Yeah, so yeah, lots of clear skies, especially you know for those ag areas looking for the sun, especially in the southern parts. Um, yeah, looking at yeah, sunny conditions uh, going as far as we can see. All right, let's move into northern and eastern parts of the state. Some pretty hot conditions, particularly in the Kimberley in recent times. Is that continuing? Yeah, that's going to continue. So, yeah, that the warmth up there is going to remain for the foreseeable future. And um, for as far as precipitation goes, we're expecting some thunderstorms over the Kimberley and, and the eastern parts of the interior uh, today. And we might get some thunderstorms develop just inland from the coast, um, east of somewhere around Port Hedland. And then as we progress uh, through to Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, we're just going to get some... You know, isolate showers and thunderstorms over the Kimberley and more like the northwest coast, um, but they're just your standard Kimberley-type thunderstorms. And yesterday, the first we heard of tropical cyclone Paddy, it was, I think it was just north of Christmas Island. Can you give us an update on the location and its movements? Yeah, so it's actually south of Christmas Island, so it's a Category 1 system and it's weakening as we talk and slowly moving out to the west. So um, it should be under cyclone intensity by tomorrow morning and continue moving out to the west away from WA and, and it shouldn't really affect Christmas Island because it's uh, far enough south away. All right then, so just moving off to the west, so no impact really on land or not bringing any rain or anything like that associated. Yeah, yep. yeah exactly. And there's also this weak tropical low that could enter the far northwest of the region. What's the story there? Yeah, so there's another system that's west of the Cocos Islands 
maybe a bit northwest, and yeah, that uh, could develop over the next few days, but not expecting that to develop into you know, a paddy-type weak tropical cyclone. We're expecting that to remain uh, just as a tropical low, and then as it develops, it will then start moving out to the southwest. So that system's not going to affect uh, WA mainland either. Okay, no rain out of that then? No, no, no rain for, for us, no. All right. Now, we'll just backtrack to this afternoon. Any warnings? Um, we've just got some uh, coastal wind warnings out for uh, basically the west coast, stretching up from uh, Geraldton all the way through to Exmouth. And we've got a coastal wind warning for the Euclid coast as well. And Joey, this morning the Bureau of Meteorology officially declared a La Nina has developed in the Pacific Ocean. Now, normally... La Nina events result in a wetter than normal period for eastern, northern and central parts of WA. But what does it mean, of of Australia I should say, but what does it mean for Western Australia? Yeah, it's it's a big deal for the eastern board. So 2011 when we had the Brisbane floods, um, that was a La Nina year. So there's a lot of warm water north of you know Queensland and and in the Pacific. Um, so that it really affects uh, the eastern board, but it doesn't affect WA as much. So the only effect we will really see out of it is we'll get a high risk of getting more than normal cyclones. So our statement is we're going to potentially get 60% more cyclones. We get five per year. Uh, We may may get an extra one uh, this season. But as far as rainfall goes, it's a really eastern board's impact and and WA doesn't see a great impact from La Nina years. But if we're getting more cyclones then in the north, doesn't that mean it could be wetter than normal period for northern parts of WA? Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on there with uh, more cyclones. We've got uh, warmer sea surface temperatures to the north and we're in a neutral... So the the main climate driver for WA is this thing called the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is where you have uh, differences in sea surface temperatures across the Indian Ocean. And at the moment, it is um, neutral, but the sea surface temperatures are generally warmer and this is not linked to the warmer temperatures that you have with La Nina. So um, so therefore we're going to potentially get more cyclones due to these warmer sea surface temperatures rather than the effects of La Nina, if that makes sense. And then so for the Southwest Land Division, the La Nina means pretty much nothing? Yep, exactly okay. right. And what is a La Nina event exactly? How is it determined? Yeah, so it's, it's all determined with your sea surface temperatures, how they move across the Pacific Ocean. So in an El Nino event, you have this warm mass of sea surface temperatures moving towards America and South America, and it leaves cold water north of uh, the eastern states. So therefore, we have quite low rainfall in La Nina years, and then or in El Nino years, but in La Nina years, when it bounces back, you get this warm sea surface temperatures uh, you know, north of Queensland, and, and that's what feeds in that tropical moisture and, and those you know, high precipitation and tropical system events. Joey, you've done well. Thanks for spending that extra bit of time here on the country. I'm just going through that La Nina announcement from the bomb today. Appreciate it. 
No worries, thanks. It is 21 to 1 and the ABC's weather reporter Kate Doyle has done an explainer on the La Nina declaration today. If you want to have a look at it online, just search ABC and La Nina, so that's L-A-N-I-N-A, and you will find it, her story, online. Checking the rainfall figures now with Richard Hudson. I thought you were upgrading my title to ABC Weather Reporter there for a moment, but no, jump the gun. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, nothing worth reading out. In the Pilbara, Karajini North topped it with four. In the Gascoigne, nothing worth reading out. In the interior, Carnegie, nine. And Warburton, Airfield, 11. In the Goldfields, nothing worth reading out. In the Eucla district, though, Eucla itself, 11, Air 15, Forest 13 and Mundrabilla Station 5, nothing at all on the islands. And then not much in the southwest land division, nothing at all in the lower west, but in the southwest, Northcliffe recorded 5. Then in the southern coastal region, a tiny bit more, Denbarker 8, Erin Air also 8, Esperance Airport recorded 8. I could have grouped those three together, you're exactly right. Hopeton North 6, Mount Howick eight, Munglin up six, Oakmarsh Farm five, and then in the Great Southern region, the only one half reading out, worth reading out, is Nyabing GRDC topped it with three mils, and that's it. But we're just one week out from summer, so I'm assuming that's probably why this morning Emergency Services Minister Rhys Whitby issued a media release saying... $2.8 million worth of grants are being made available to 11 local shires to help them reduce bushfire risks. So these are the Mitigation Activity Fund grants or MAF grants. And five of the local governments are going to receive these MAF grants for the first time. The City of Greater Geraldton, the City of Armadale, the Shire of Cranbrook, the Shire of Capel and the Shire of Esperance. So the shires can spend that money on things like creating fire breaks and reducing fuel loads and hazard reduction burns to minimise the potential risks of fire. So they're probably going to be busy over the next little while. 18 to 1. Thanks for that, Richard. And off to Mouche. Catching up with John Testro just before 1, he'll go through the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. And Sam has phoned in from Geraldton to say the non-appearance of WA's Aboriginal Affairs Minister on the country is typical of the McGowan government's attitude of simply ignoring what's going on in the bush. Text through if you want to have your say, 0448 922 Well, the big resources news that came out late yesterday was that Woodside is going ahead with its $16 billion Scarborough LNG project. It will be the biggest fossil fuel development in Australia for the last decade and comes as Woodside merges with the petroleum arm of mining giant BHP. Conservationists are not happy about this announcement, but Woodside Chief Executive Meg O'Neill says the Scarborough project will provide an important transition fuel as the world tries to decarbonise. So LNG is going to be an extremely important energy source for the world for decades to come. When you look at the energy demand in the nations where we sell our product, uh, and these are the nations of Japan, Korea, China, other countries in Southeast Asia, uh, all of these countries are trying to do two things. One, grow their economy and improve the quality of life of the people who live there. And secondly, decarbonize. Many of these countries today are still heavily reliant on coal. And one of the lowest hanging opportunities to try to reduce their carbon intensity is to use gas instead of coal. 
we see a very, very bright future for LNG as part of the solution to the climate change challenge. Given how quickly, though, markets are moving away from fossil fuels, and obviously this is the biggest deal that's been done since the Glasgow climate talks, is there a risk that this project could become a stranded asset? We have sold already 60% of the gas from Scarborough, so the market for our product is very strong. I think another important point to highlight is that the Scarborough project uh, is a very low carbon intensity LNG development. So the reservoir itself contains 0.1% CO2, making it one of the lowest carbon intensity reservoirs anywhere in Australia. Uh, And the project, so both the offshore facility and the onshore facility, are designed to be very emissions efficient. Uh, So this will be the lowest carbon intensity LNG from Australia, which I think will make it extraordinarily attractive for our customers uh, in Asia and other places around the world. What do you say to detractors, namely Andrew Forrest, who very publicly outed this proposal? Look, I I think um, there's a lot of rhetoric. We look at the facts. We look at the economies of the nations where we sell our product. We look at the size and complexity of the energy mix today. Now, look, we absolutely embrace uh, climate change. We fully support the science. We know we need to take steps to decarbonize our business, and we we have made commitments in the near, medium, and long term to work towards that goal of net zero by 2050. Uh, But we need to make sure that we continue to help the world meet its energy needs today and into the future. And we think this LNG development is a fantastic opportunity to do that. There are a few environmental hurdles still to clear. Is there any risk that this project won't go ahead? So we have obtained our primary environmental approvals, and those have gone through a number of different environmental agencies. So NOPSEMA uh, is the primary approver for the offshore project. Uh, But we also have approvals from the state EPA as well as the Commonwealth Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. So the primary approvals are all in place. We do have some secondary approvals that we need to obtain, uh, and the project schedule has appropriate time to secure those secondary approvals. Woodside Chief Executive Meg O'Neill speaking with Eliza Borello about the news the company has made a final investment decision on its $16 billion Scarborough LNG development. Graham Bethune is a, an analyst from Energy Quest who wasn't surprised by the announcement. He thinks it makes good commercial sense, but says this will be the last project of its kind in Australia. Yeah, I think one of, one of, one of the big issues about um, development of Scarborough previously was whether BHP would vote in favour of, of it or not. Um, so obviously the um, merger between BHP Petroleum and Woodside has cleared all that up. So I, th- I think so. I think in many ways um, the likelihood in- really, really increased, not not notwithstanding sort of various kinds of criticism. The other bit of criticism is that it's actually building a second train on Pluto rather than putting the gas into the Northwest Shelf, and so the- but that's been raised a lot of times, and Woodside has given the justification for that. I mean, why has it taken so long for Woodside to get to this decision? Any LNG projects over the line always, always takes a long time because they're very big and very expensive. I think one, one, one of the reasons, though, was also that um, previously they were having to negotiate with BHP um, about it. But um, as I said, now that's um, cleared up with the um, merger with BHP Petroleum. In the context of Woodside's operations and its ambitions and its history, how significant is Scarborough? Scarborough is very significant in terms of um, Woodside's ambitions. Um, Woodside um, had grand amb- ambitions going back you know, 10, 10 years for um, a whole lot of LNG developments. So that included um, 
um, expanding Pluto. Um, it ex included um, Browse. It included Scarborough. But what's happened is that really, well, Browse isn't likely to happen and um, Sunrise isn't likely to happen. So um, they've really been short of um, growth projects. So um, this is an important growth project for them. And also they get they get access to other growth projects through um, the BHP takeover. I mean, is it a new lease on life in a sense for a company like Woodside because of the the time scales involved and the you know the investment required, but also the returns that these sorts of projects tend to deliver? Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as a new lease on life. I'd describe it as um, racing to catch up. Really, <laughs> these sorts of companies deal in mega projects, don't they? And if they can't get a mega project over the line, then it makes it hard. Yeah, they, yeah, they certainly do deal in um, mega mega projects, and um, this is this is a very big project. So these projects are never easy to get up. So it's um, terrific news um, that they're um, able to sanction it now, and so at, le at least um, this um, gives them a major, at least one major growth project. Whereas the cupboard was looking a bit bare previously, prior to Scarborough and prior to the BHP deal. And what about the Australian oil and gas scene? Is Scarborough significant in that context? Well, pr probably any any new development like this is um, significant. I think this is the biggest um, oil and gas investment in South in, in Australia for um, 10 years. But at the same time, we've got the prospect of um, other um, LNG projects starting to um, decline uh, because, in fact, we've only got this – this is the only, only um, new West Australian projects. The other um, new projects – in a way, which is a bit like this, is in Dar is that with the Darwin project where um, Santos is backfilling that with gas from Barossa. So um, we've got a couple of LNG projects, but like North 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 America has got 11 projects on the um, under consideration. Um, Qatar is expanding their LNG significantly from 77 million tonnes a year to 110. It's good to, good to see we're getting some development in Australia. I believe we should be seeing more. There has been obviously a lot of pressure come on to Woodside over this one particular project. Increasingly, it seems in the past 12 months, there's been, you know, added weight to that pressure. Where to from here for Woodside once Scarborough, you know, goes ahead? Is there another big project like this to follow? Or do you, in some ways, do you think it could be the last of its kind? Uh, well, I, th I think I think there is um, yeah, certainly pressure on mega projects like this in future, partly um, because um, they're very, very hard to execute um, and um, uh, tend to have significant cost blowouts, for example. That's a big issue for them. Emissions and um, net zero is a big issue too for the, for the companies, um, dem demonstrating that they're um, able to effectively decarbonise the projects. Energy Quest Chief Executive Graham Bethune with Daniel Mercer. Woodside's decision to progress Scarborough comes despite a furious last-ditch bid by environmentalists to stop the project after the Conservation Council of WA launched legal action last week. Executive Director Maggie Wood says they'll keep fighting against the Scarborough development. Well, we're really disappointed that this has gone ahead. We're talking about Australia's most polluting fossil fuel proposal. Less than two weeks ago, we saw world leaders gather in Glasgow to talk about reducing carbon emissions, and yet today we have Woodside rubber stamping this climate catastrophe. We're talking about 1.6 billion tonnes of carbon emissions over the next 25 years, and that's totally incompatible with the world's efforts to protect our planet for future generations. A final investment decision in other times in Western Australia means exactly that, that it's going through. But should Woodside expect that this will go through unchallenged? 
Absolutely not. Our campaign is supported by thousands of Australians all across the country who are deeply committed to stopping this project from going ahead. I think this announcement, if anything, will give them further motivation to continue the momentum of the work we've been doing. What do you say to Woodside who says the world needs this as a transition fuel? Um, world leaders only two weeks ago were very clear that we don't need any more oil or gas. And so, you know, the world's rapidly decarbonising and Woodside should recognise that. Conservation Council of WA Executive Director Maggie Wood. You can read more on this story. It's online. Just make your way to the ABC Rural website. There is a link on the ABC Rural Facebook page to the online story and lots of you are keen to have your say in the comments. Paul says, why? We're in a climate crisis. What part of the urgency do these psychopathic corporate courtiers not understand? And John says, that's great. We need a sustainable energy source. Check it out on the ABC's Rural Facebook page. Eight to one. Have you noticed the prices of vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower are pretty high at the moment? Well, the reason is we're currently in what's called the shoulder season here in WA, coming out of the winter crop and the summer crop isn't quite ready for picking. Russell Ivitz is part owner of a wholesaling company called Australian Produce Brokers, which is based at the Canningvale Markets in Perth. He says the current farm labour shortage is also affecting prices. Yeah, normally $4 a kilo is expensive. So, um, yeah, being at another 30% on top of that is actually... Um, goes out pretty quick. Cauliflowers are the same. They've been uh, maxing out pretty hard. I mean, those sort of things, the freight rate and everything else on those where there's not a lot of heads per pallet space, yeah, it starts to incur lots of other issues. And so who's making the money? Is it coming from the grower end? Is it coming from the supermarket end? Or is it coming in the middle? With not very many retailers going broke. There's a lot of uh, smaller guys having to give up. They can't keep up with the costings of it. Everybody expects the guys at the bottom of the food chain to lift their game with quality assurance, everything else. So that's where the finger gets pointed all the time. But there's no excess subsidies or anything else like the um, primary producers get in other countries. Yeah, this sort of situation even happening in New Zealand, the New Zealand government will, will do a deal where your freight bill is is uh, tax exempt and things like that. Even out of frickin' Tasmania, they're able to land product from Tasmania to WA and the, uh, the government will cop the freight bill. So that actually makes them able to produce in Tasmania and compete with a WA market on a WA product. You know, it's pretty ludicrous when they don't have to cop that sort of a bill, you know. So ultimately there's a shortage at the moment. On a lot of products, yeah, the shoulder periods is, is really copping it. So, I mean, there's there's other things out of Kananara have given up on a lot of lines too. So normally they'd run products up until November. Uh, they gave up in at the end of September, beginning of October on some lines. But the labour bill just isn't worthwhile. And the quality of labour too. So the quality of what labour is about, it's questionable whether that is actually employable or not. So how are you getting around the supply shortage at the moment? You mentioned Tasmania. Are you having to bring in broccoli and cauliflower in particular from the East Coast? Yes. Yeah. So that's their first port of call when there's a gap between local producers, markets on the East Coast and making sure you're dealing with them regularly as well and you give them at least a percentage of your business. So you've actually still got yeah, a foot in the door all the time to be able to source not when you need it. Like they, they do the same thing for us with different products. So um, yeah, it's people you deal with regularly that you go to. Yeah, We can't actually bring anything out of 
other countries other than Australia at the moment, especially some of the exotic treats come in from other countries, but that's about it. So are you expecting those East Coast imports to stop in the next couple of weeks when those local brassicas start to be picked? Yes, they will. But I mean, once WA starts buying out of the East Coast, their market will pick up too. So then they will just be looking after their local market. So probably in about two weeks, the price will be too dear for WA to buy out of there. Then we'll go back to WA product for a while. So what does that mean for prices over the next couple of weeks, do you think? Will we see once WA comes back onto line that the prices will come back? Not on the retail market. I don't think you ever see that. That's the same as what they do with meat. They can come back online, uh, so to speak, and what you get returned out of the sale yards, but it does it back to normal or back to what it was previously, but you don't see a change at the retail end. Russell Ivitz from Australian Produce Brokers speaking to Jessica Hayes about why prices are high at the moment for brassicas, so vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower. And it sounds like a lot of growers are reluctant to extend their picking window to cover the shoulder season due to the current labour shortage. Four minutes to one to the markets now. And 8,367 sheep and lambs sold at the Mushay sale yards this morning. So numbers up around 1,100 on last week. It was an average quality yarding dominated by light store lambs. John Testro is at Mushay. John, can you run through the details? Good afternoon, Belinda. Pretty quick sale today with uh, the light numbers, but... uh, had a strong sense of deja vu. In the uh, lamb section, stronger grazier demand and competition on medium weight ewe and weather lambs in the 13 to 17 kilo range. The produced gains of 5 to $10 at near 800 cents. Trade lambs 21 to 22 remained firm at 7.30 cents. Heavy lambs eased $10 at a gain near 7.30 and sold to a top at uh, 1.93. Best hoggets firm at near 6.10 cents. Weather's also firm at 5.80 to 600. And in the ewe mutton section, values firm on bonus and trade weights and rates near 580 cents, where the heavy weights were up by $5 at near 560 cents. We'll run through some quick prices for you. In the new season's light store lambs sold to graziers, 0 to 12 kilos sold from 50 to 100, down 5, 13 to, kilo, uh, 13 to 16 kilos. They sold from 85 to 131, up 10. The 17 to 18 at 127 to 137, up by 5. Grazing is pretty strong there. Trade lambs, 21 to 22 kilos, uh, remained firm. They sold from 145 to 170. The prime, 23 plus, down $10. Sold from 168 to 193. Best heavy hoggets. They sold to both to the trade and graziers seeking uh, weathers. They remained... Um, Solid and sold from $140 to $200. The yarding of uh, mutton was very mixed in quality. The lightweight under 20 kilos firm at 100 to 107. Medium weight bonus 23 to 24 kilos. Firm with sales from 120 to 150 and the 25 to 30 range. They sold from uh, 140 to 186 also firm. Tops with a heavy fleece on those. Heavyweights, uh, they sold from 177 to 208, up by $5. And in a very small selection of heavy weathers, uh, they remained firm and sold from 160 to 190. But uh, that's on comparable quality from last week's sale. That's all from Mushay for today, Belinda. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. Thank you very much for that, John. Tomorrow, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market there. Tracy Kilner with the details for you this time tomorrow. Not far away from the news at one, and this text just through from Paul, who says, 
When holidaying in Taiwan in 2018, I was in line at the main airport with two Taiwanese friends. We were talking about climate change and I tried to explain about El Nino and his sister when I said La Nina. Everyone within hearing range moved away from me and looked at me in disgust. My friends told me it sounds like the most obscene comment in the Taiwanese dialect, and I had to apologise widely. Paul, thank you for that. I will always remember that every time I'm talking about the La Nina. Great to talk to you on ABC Time for the News, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.